Well, as you remain standing, you can grab your Bibles and feel free to make your way to Revelation chapter 14. And our sermon text for tonight will be verses 14 through the end, verses 14 through verse 20. And these are the words of the one and only God. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice, to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city And blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. And so ends the reading of God's word thus far. May he add his blessing to it. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do praise you for you are Lord of heaven and earth, maker of all things. And who is bringing all things unto completion that you might be all in all even an everlasting kingdom where the righteous will shine like the sun in your presence. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that we might be rooted in Christ, built up in Christ, and established in the faith. In Jesus' name we pray, and amen. It was the best of times, It was the worst of times. Well, perhaps you can recognize those words of one Charles Dickens, even the opening line to his work, A Tale of Two Cities, wherein Dickens is trying to set the scene of two different kinds of life, two different kinds of existences with two entirely different outcomes, all brilliantly embedded in that title, A Tale of Two Cities. And we have much the same tonight in our text from Revelation 14 that we could perhaps think of as the tale of two harvests. Two harvests, each representing two different kinds of life, two different humanities, two different existences, with firstly that of the godly, those who are washed by the blood of the lamb, and then secondly with that of the ungodly, those crushed in the winepress of God's 
wrath. And in that regard, it very much is the best of times and the worst of times. And so we will look at these two harvests tonight, looking firstly at a harvest of righteousness followed by a harvest of wrath. But all of it with the main point, very simply, as God glorified as the great harvester. God glorified as the supreme judge. And so firstly, let us look at the harvest of righteousness in verses 14 through 16. And to pick up from last week, you might remember we ended with that blessing. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. And we will soon see exactly why that is true. But before we get to the harvest itself, of even greater importance is the harvester himself. And so for that, John directs our gaze as you see in verses 14. John says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on that cloud one like a son of man. Now that language, son of man, hopefully you know by now, this is the title Jesus most frequently used to refer to himself in the Gospels. It's got background in books such as Ezekiel, and of course most prominently in Daniel's vision in Daniel 7, where one like a son of man comes before the ancient of days, comes before the throne, and he receives dominion and glory in a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. And so the imagery is, of course, that of Jesus Christ ascending to the Father to receive nothing less than total dominion that all peoples, all languages, all nations might serve him. It's as if that vision from Daniel is now being realized, executed in Revelation. As you see in verse 15, this instruction, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest is fully ripe. One of my great loves is a love of gardening. And to me, it is nothing short of a miracle, the magical wonder of God's creation that you can take a, a tiny, tiny speck you plant that speck in some dirt, and right before your eyes, this, this minuscule speck grows and grows and grows 100-fold. And of course, much of the joy of gardening is that as that speck grows, your anticipation grows along with it as you are looking forward to your great reward, which is nothing less than a day of harvest. I know for me on that day, it is as if all my work and my watering, and my tilling, and my tending, and my fertilizer has now finally culminated. And I have my great reward as a gardener. I think it's right to say how much more so is that the case with Jesus Christ, who is himself the Lord of the harvest. That as Isaiah says, he shall live to see his seed. That that is his great reward, indeed his desire as the first fruits of the harvest, to harvest a people unto eternal life. As Thomas Brooks once said, Christ can hardly be kept away from us, that he would not wait one minute longer than necessary, that his great desire is to bring us to himself in a reaping of eternal life. Kids, one thing you should notice as you read your Bible is just how much like a plant you are. Yes, that's right, how much like a plant you are. I'm sure you've noticed that plants require certain things to live. 
They require sunshine, water, fertilizer, nutrients. And without these things, a plant will every time die and wither away. And kids, the same is very much true for you spiritually, that you must have the seed of God's word planted in your heart, that you must have the light of Jesus Christ shining upon him, that you are even rooted in him, that you must even have and desire God's pruning upon your life so that you might be more fruitful for God as you look forward to your day of harvest. Kids, all this plant imagery is simply a way of saying you are entirely, thoroughly dependent upon God for all growth and life. So there's Jesus Christ, the great harvester. Now what about the actual harvest itself? And perhaps you can recall the well-known parable of the weeds from Matthew's gospel. You might remember that parable. The man goes out into the field and he sows the good seed only to have weeds sprout up because, of course, this enemy secretly comes in and sows the weeds. You might remember the men go to the wise farmer and tell him or ask him, shouldn't we just go and, and pluck up those weeds? And the wise farmer, of course, says, no, no, don't do that. Doing that, lest you do that, you might rip up the good crop when you try and pluck up those weeds. So instead, just wait. Wait until what? Wait until the day of the harvest, and I will gather up my good crop and treasure it up. And then the parable ends with this great hope that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And that indeed is the essence of this first harvest. Because pick up any book on gardening, and no doubt you will find a section on the wisdom of timing the harvest. Indeed, it's one of the most difficult things to do. Harvest too early, and you've got premature crops. Harvest too late, and you've got overripe crops. And so you've got to time it just right, and it speaks to the great wisdom of God. Hear it once more in verse 15, as the angel declares this harvest is, quote, fully ripe, perfectly ripe. And that Greek word there for ripe connotes this drying up, this withering of wheat, which is why commentators so often connect this to that parable of the good harvest. And you see that all the imagery of the winepress, of blood, of God's wrath, is all entirely absent from this first harvest. And in its place is this hope that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And Christian, do you know that hope? Christian, do you have that hope to which you have been called? And if not, take heart. This is Paul's very prayer in Ephesians, that he prays to know more and more and more of the hope to which he has been called. And I trust you see tonight in brief that that hope is nothing less than Jesus Christ himself, the hope of glory, to see the king in his beauty, to see the son of man come and gather his people in a harvest of righteousness to bring them to his very self, that they might be eternally blessed. Well, there is but an all too brief word on the best of times with this harvest of righteousness. And for a most sobering reality, we turn next to the worst of times 
looking at another harvest that is not simply reaped, not simply gathered, but even crushed in this winepress of wrath in verses 17 and following. And you'll notice that many differences leap out. You'll see, for instance, that verses 17 and 18, this angel of fire summons, calls for not the entire earth this time, but specifically these clusters of grapes to be gathered. You can notice, too, it is not merely this gathered harvest to be stored up, but it is a thrown harvest in verse 19, as in gather the grapes and throw it into a winepress. You might remember books like Isaiah, where God is depicted as this vine dresser, and he's got this vineyard that he loves, and he clears out all the rocks, he removes all the pests, He waters it. He cares for it. He chooses all the best soil. And then he even says, what more is there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? Surely my vineyard will be a blessing for all people. And then God does what any vine dresser would do. He looks for grapes. And instead of ripe grapes, what does it yield? But behold, it yields only wild grapes. Grapes of wrath. And therefore, this vineyard is trampled down, something brought to fulfillment in Babylonian exile. And here in Revelation 14, what was only partial with Israel is now fully escalated judgment. As these grapes are thrown not into just any wine press, but you see specifically in verse 19, it is indeed a supreme wine press. It is none other than the wine press of the wrath of God. And we certainly do well to pause and to reflect and to ask, what is more sobering, more terrifying, more awesome, more real than this winepress? That those who are not washed by the blood of the Lamb are trodden over, crushed, pressed with such unrelenting fury That the blood of the ungodly rises and rises and rises and rises to the horse's bridle for 1,600, 40 times 40 stadia, nearly 200 miles of this river flowing crimson with the blood of the unredeemed. And it makes one tremble to ask in a way that only such awesome imagery can do. What explains such bloodshed? Right, when we hear today of a massacre on the news or in media, we may so often shake our heads, shake our fists, saddened, frustrated at the purposeless of such violence, wanting an account for it. And so what do we do here with the preview of what is the greatest violence of all? Of course, we need look no further than Paul's letter to the Romans, addressing the Gentile, addressing the Jew, addressing all mankind, that before God, indeed, every mouth shall be stopped, and the whole world shall be accountable to God, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Dealing with divine judgment is no doubt a struggle. If it's not a struggle for you, I would surmise that you have not seriously pondered what an awesome, awesome thing it is. And I do believe one reason we struggle is that we have 
failed to grasp truly God's absolute dominion, God's complete authority. To return once more to the topic of gardening, I know for me occasionally when I do harvest, I have this moment standing over my crops and it just, it dawns on me what a thorough act of dominion it is. I look out and think these are my crops, my land. I watered them, I tilled them, I sowed them. Some are of use to be consumed and some are of use to be thrown out. And how infinitely more so is that the case with the Lord of the harvest. That God as God, God as the all-wise creator and sustainer of all things, maker of heaven and earth, how right, how fitting, how justified it is that God has prepared vessels of mercy and that God has prepared vessels of wrath. And who is man that he would answer back to the cosmic harvester of all creation? And perhaps just as we grasp to grope that truth of God's ultimate authority, perhaps equally difficult it is to grasp, to rightly estimate the sinfulness of sin. That do we really believe, do we truly believe that but one sin One sinful word, one sinful thought, one sinful action is truly deserving of the wrath and curse of God. That but in one sin we see God's dominion challenged, his law questioned, his grace trampled upon, his goodness challenged as man declares that his throne is in fact the highest throne of all. And students, undoubtedly, you know that such teaching on divine judgment is questioned in our day as it is in every day, met with objections, unfortunately, even from within the church itself. It wasn't all that long ago a very influential pastor came out and declared that, quote, love wins by what he meant, what he intended, was that God, as a loving God, an authentically loving God, would not condemn anyone to such everlasting punishment. Instead, God as a loving God would, quote, simply forgive us. After all, we do that as mere humans. If you sin against me, I don't try to impose eternal punishment upon you. I simply forgive and move on, as any reasonable person would surely do. And ah, but you see that is exactly the point, isn't it? That I don't exact eternal punishment Because I am not eternally holy. I am not supreme justice, but not so with God. See, unlike you and I, God is of pure eyes than can behold evil. Unlike you and I, God has an uncompromising hatred of evil that stems from his unchanging purity and love. Unlike you and I, God's righteousness means that he will never hold the innocent to be guilty and the guilty to be innocent. You see, God's wrath is but the expression of his perfect divinity. To quote once again from Isaiah chapter 63, this provides the imagery of Revelation 14 as God himself is is covered with blood from 
trotting out the winepress, and God says this. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. We know Revelation is a book that has the saints pleading, How long, O Lord? How long? How long until we are vindicated? How long as we are persecuted? How long until we are saved? How long until we are avenged? And surely you've had a similar thought in your life, perhaps even now crying out, how long, O Lord, until redemption? How long until your promises come to pass? And so, friend, hear what your God is saying to you. God is saying, I do not need to call for backup. I do not need a helping hand. Salvation belongs to the Lord. My own arm will bring it, and my wrath, hell, it is not like the petty, self-centered anger of man. No, no, it will sustain me. It will propel me to accomplish my purposes, to avenge my people, and to usher in a kingdom that will last forever. It is the salvation of of my people. And so as we begin to close, let us lay upon our hearts but three things from this tale of to harvest. Firstly, the justice of forgiveness. The justice of forgiveness. I hope you do see the stark reality that you and I do not deserve to be in the first harvest of righteousness that we have indeed merited to be grapes of wrath, trodden in the winepress of God. And so we, we can ask, well, what then does God simply forgive us? Because it is indeed nothing less than the glorious gospel of our salvation, that to be saved from this winepress and salvation from this winepress is found in another winepress, the winepress of Calvary, that it was there that the Son of Man, instead of pouring out his wrath, drank the cup of God's wrath down to the very dregs, that it was there that the Son of God, instead of trampling the grapes, was himself trampled, that it was there that the Son of God, instead of being the crusher, was himself crushed for our iniquities. You can even notice the location of this judgment in verse 20. Outside the city, which is the place where all which is unclean is forbidden to enter the new Jerusalem. And as Hebrews tells us, it was, of course, outside the city that the Lord Jesus suffered in our place, that God might be faithful, indeed, even just to forgive us. Secondly, Perhaps a bit of a curveball, but I do think it is true. Encouragement for evangelism. Encouragement for evangelism. It is no small thing that Jesus refers to himself as Lord of the harvest in passages like John chapter 4. And as president of the harvest, he's always trying to get his disciples to realize, hey, these fields, they're not barren. They're ripe. They're white. 
They're ready for the harvest. So go out there and reap. Go out there and do the work and enter into someone else's labor because harvest is coming. Wake up. And I do hope that gives you courage in the church's mission. Even boldness in your own evangelism to see that God is not a lousy farmer. God is not a lazy gardener. With God, it is a bumper crop that he has prepared a harvest, a multitude that cannot even be numbered, even giving his own son to secure such a harvest. And lastly, that indeed brings us to the last part, which is the glory of the harvester himself, the glory of Jesus Christ. You might have noticed maybe even felt in verse 15, we read it quickly, but you could go back and read it once more, that it seems like this angel is kind of bossing around the Son of Man, you know, telling him what to do, take out your, your sickle, now it's time to, to reap. And So some commentators have concluded, well, this, this can't be Jesus, because an angel cannot boss Jesus around and tell Jesus what to do. But I would argue perhaps a better picture is that this is not so much a directive as it is a gift, a gift from the Father. That you see this angel comes out of the temple, comes out of God's dwelling place and carrying this message from the Father to the Son, telling him, Son, your long-awaited harvest is here. The riches of your glorious inheritance are here, and the hour has dawned. For this indeed is his great reward that the Father has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son. For he was the first grain of wheat that fell into the ground, that died, that rose again as the first fruits of an eternal harvest, and who will come again to gather his people so that you and I might be eternally and forever blessed. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do praise you that you indeed are the Lord of the harvest, that you have sowed your word into our very hearts, this imperishable seed, that it would even sprout up 30, 60, even a hundredfold, that you have given us nothing less than your beloved Son, who did indeed fall into the ground, who died, who rose again, who has purchased us by his very blood so that we might be reaped unto eternal life. We pray that your word would be treasured up in our hearts and lived out in our very lives. In Jesus' name we pray and amen.